Drinking with Authors contains adult themes and subjects, including discussions involving alcohol. We ask if you are drinking along to please drink and listen responsibly. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Okay. Welcome to Drinking with Authors. I am your host, Erica Lance, and with me today is... Valerie Willis. And today we have Natasha... And say your last name because I always bomb this part. Times. Times. Yes. That one's actually times with an N. How much cider have you been drinking already? You got... Yeah, whatever. Okay, fine. (laughs) Let's discuss what we're drinking since Val's already drunk again. Um, so today I actually have organic chocolate stout cider by um, Samuel Smith's organic chocolate stout cider. I decided to try it after somebody had it on the last podcast. What are you drinking? I'm doing uh, another favorite cider voice, and today is strawberry magic. Strawberry magic. Okay. Tasha, what are you drinking? What I'm drinking it? red wine. Um, I think it's Malbec. Um, I got this from the Naked Wine Collection. I just tried them for the first time during the pandemic, and they're awesome. So they're, you know, now they're sending me lots of different varieties. So yeah, so that's what I got now. Awesome. I like Naked Wines during the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm totally on board with that. Okay, cool. So welcome to our podcast. Why don't we start by telling the listeners a little bit about what you write? Sure. So, um... So I'm a fiction author. Um, I just published my uh, debut novel. It's called They Called Me Wyatt. Um, I've been writing fiction for uh, for a while, for almost 10 years. I started with short stories. And then I, five years ago, I started writing my debut novel. And the novel uh, is about... Um, a, a Jordanian student. I'm originally from Jordan, from the Middle East. I mean, hence the accent. And she moved to, um, she came to the U.S. to go to college. And that's the first chapter of, of the novel. So I'm not ruining it for you. So she gets killed um, on her birthday. And uh, Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then she wakes up and then she's in the body of a three-year-old boy. Um, Caucasian boy um, in Seattle and she's in Maryland and so she sees the word through his eyes and she tries to communicate uh, to the to her I guess new parents about what happened to her but the boy is speech delayed and the, the parents having issues with him they don't know what's going on with him and she's trying to solve her own murder um, through the body of the three-year-old boy um, and then eventually the boy grows up he becomes an adult and he hears about the um, the murder that happened 25 years ago and the police back then ruled it as suicide and for a reason he doesn't understand he gets so attached to this story of this woman and he doesn't know why and he becomes so obsessed that he goes back to Jordan trying to solve the mystery and eventually he solves the mystery, or we'll see if he solves the mystery and if she gets justice um, and see who killed her. So the, the, so the novel, um, in addition to being, you know, supernatural and murder mystery, but it also deals with the very topical issues, the issue of immigration, uh, which is, you know, I'm an immigrant myself. I moved here 15 years ago. 
so that the topic of immigration is is, is something that uh, personal to me and uh, I'm very invested in. It also talks about and the issue of being an Arab American in the U.S., uh, the issue of of racism, um, the issue of adjusting to both words. And I, I was sort of harsh on both cultures, honestly, on on the Middle Eastern culture and on the American culture. Um, I, you know, you know, as as a woman growing up in the Middle East, you have the issues that you go through. It's a patriarchal society, and plus, as an immigrant in the U.S., you've always seen as as the other. You're always seen as the immigrant. You're always seen as the Arab American. So it deals with all of these issues in addition to the thriller, the the murder mystery part, and the supernatural part. That is a lot of things rolled together. That's a lot. That sounds like a very intense book. So it took you five years to write, though. Let's talk a little bit, because you said you've been a writer for a long time. Why do you think it took you so long to write the book? Well, let's blame the kids. No. <laughs> <laughs> we Life do. Happens. We do. All Life the time. <laughs> well, the reason is, um, so when I started writing the job, uh, the, the book, I had a full-time job. And back then I had two kids and then I got pregnant with the third. And so my, I mean, it, it was, I didn't really have much time. And I looked my, at my schedule and I was like, it, you know, it's probably impossible to find extra time, but I decided to make the impossible possible. So I, I decided to wake up every day from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. when the kids are still asleep, before I get them ready to school, before I get ready for work. So I had only one hour. That's it. So I just wrote every day for an hour um, until I finished it. And then there's the first draft, the second draft, and then the editing, and then trying to find an agent, and then the rejections, and finding a publisher, and the publishing scene, and all the drama with that. So it's, it's, it's a long process. It is a long process, and we get to talk about some of the drama of that. That's part of what the podcast is about. But before that, you wrote short stories. So have you always written, like, thrillers and mysteries? What were your short stories about? Um, actually, no. They were not really thriller and mysteries. They all... They, they, they basically focused on what I know. You know, authors write about what they know. So most of my stories were about women, most of them. I think except for one was told from the uh, perspective of a man. And they're all Jordanian-Americans, <laughs> obviously, or Jordanians. And they all, they talk about their life in in the U.S. and the issues they face. And many of them talk about marriage. Many of them talk about parenting. So it's kind of universal themes, but mixed, but seen through the immigrant lens or through the Arab American lens. Like a slice of life uh, inspired by your own life. Correct. And you know, like it's, you know, like, I don't know. I do not know what it what it is to grow up in Iowa, you know, or so I cannot, it's hard for me to write a character who like grew up in Iowa and on a farm because that's not the life that I lived. So for me, it's someone who grew up in the Middle East, moved to the U.S. So this is what I know and this is what I write about. Okay, so with that said, have you been working on a second book or a sequel to They Call Me Wyatt? 
I have been working on a on a second novel, um, but I have to be honest that during the pandemic, I sort of stopped. Um, I think with the homeschooling and everything, it was just there was no schedule anymore. So I'm I'm just taking a break until I guess things get back to normal. If we ever get back to normal, um, so the second book is also set in Amman, Jordan, which is the capital of Jordan. And it's about a building, and all the residents in the building immigrate to the U.S., every single one of them. And we follow their immigration journey, and every single one of them face bad luck or harsh circumstances, whether it's tragedies, whether it's death, whether it's accident, whether it's imprisonment. So they all face uh, adversities. And so the residents, they start thinking, what's going on with us? Was there a curse? in the building? Was there some sort of a hex? Was there something in the pipes uh, in the building? Or was it the actual immigrant story? Was it their own bad choices? What what really happened to those residents of the building that they all faced this adversity? So we leave the reader thinking if it was actual um, a supernatural uh, hex that was placed on the building that made all of them face through this, or it was their own bad choices. Wow. Well, I like that a lot. You are definitely not a fluffy writer. So I'll give you that. There aren't aren't imposing unicorns in what you're writing at all. Yeah. I I, I grew up in the Middle East. What do you expect? (laughs) Yeah. No, no. I write horror. I appreciate that thoroughly. I'm like my friend here who writes fluffy stuff. I don't write totally fluff all the time, but it's definitely fluffier than yours. Yeah. It's way fluffier than mine. Mine, yours is like a cuddly pillow you can cuddle up with. Mine's got spark, you know, spikes. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what made you decide you wanted to write. So you have a very unique story because obviously, especially in the current time, and I'm just going to mention this is um, because this podcast will air at a later time, but we're in the middle of the Black Lives Matter and we're in the middle of a very um, large uh, movement around the fact of um, in inequities and discrimination and stuff like that. So you, though, um, I would think, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, and I would love to hear your side of the story, come sure. from a situation where when 9-11 happened and all of that, I think there was a general view of people, anyone from, like, the Arabic society and stuff like that, yeah. where suddenly judged as everybody's a terrorist that comes yeah. from that area. What are your feelings a little bit, and you don't have to get political, that's not my what I'm asking, but you have a unique perspective because we're both sitting here, um, white girls that were yeah. born in America, so we don't have that. And um, yeah. I just want to add, one of my friends said something that I thought was really prolific to me. He's a black gentleman that works for me, and he said, until you actually have to view the world through the eyes of somebody that has the level of discrimination that they have, because even if I talk about bullying in school and stuff like that, it's nothing compared to growing up with this view. So talk about that a little if you want to, but. Yeah, I mean, so growing up in Jordan and um, Jordan is pretty, um, it's not that diverse. So like the people that we grew up were all Jordanians, you know, they were all Arabs, they're all Middle Easterns. So, I, I went to school in London. Um, I got my master's there. It was a full scholarship because my parents could not afford to, you know, to send me to study in London. Um, but uh, I went there like three days 
after 9-11. So it was an interesting time to be in, you know, Europe. And then my view is I definitely feel the discrimination. Uh, I mean, I feel it when I travel. I mean, that, that's really the place mostly when I feel it is, you know, my, my husband is American, he's Caucasian and, um, you know, my, my kids are mixed race. But whenever we travel, I'm the one who's all, always, you know, randomly selected. So now we just like joke about it. Okay, my husband's name is Jeff. I was like, okay, I'll see you in a bit because I know I'm going to be randomly selected. So I always, always get randomly selected. Although I'm a US citizen, I know that. Um, so, and, and they know that, but they see that I was born in the Middle East. Uh, so, so there's that, which is I, I always get flagged when I travel. Um, and like I remember when we went to Jerusalem from Jordan, you know, on my U.S. passport, I was stopped by the Israeli soldiers. I was interrogated for five hours. Oh, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, in a room. Um, so I've, I've been through that. And it's also, although I'm a U.S. citizen, but, you know, you look at the passport and you're born in the Middle East, you're born in Amman, Jordan. So there's, there's always that. So that's the travel part that I always face. Um, I mean, I live in, in, in Montgomery County in, in Rockville, Maryland, and it's a pretty very diverse and very tolerant place. So I don't face like the like lots of discrimination, but I mean, there are small instances here and there. For example, once I was walking with two colleagues of mine, one was Iraqi and one was Syrian, walking down the street in Washington, D.C., and then um, a homeless man, uh, we, and we're all speaking in Arabic, you know, different dialects, but we're all speaking in Arabic. And a homeless man looks at the three of us and he hears the foreign language and he starts shouting at us, Bin Laden, Bin Laden. And we all looked at each other and our reaction, we all started laughing. It was, and even the homeless man started laughing. I mean, it was like so stupid that it was so funny. And because, and, um, but you know, like issues like this. Once I had a neighbor who, um, I don't know, we had an issue about uh, the leaves and the kids jumped in the leaves in front of their house, something really stupid. So she started sending threatening letters all the time, like, you foreign alien, go back to where you came from, you know, oh, I'm a full-blooded American, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all, all that stuff. And, and it was, it reached to the level of threatening, like she's saying, um, something along the lines of, you don't know what I do when uh, you upset me, you don't want to uh, see my wrath or whatever. So, so wow. wow. Yeah. So I, I, I was. I Humans was, are dumb. I, I, I was pretty scared. scared. And, and, and she couldn't really place me. I, I think it's hard to place where I'm from. Some people think I'm Hispanic. Some people, you know, and so she says, like, go back to. Uh, uh, I think Latin America or Israel or wherever you came from. Like she just put any countries because I was gonna say she just randomly pulling geography. Yeah, geography. yeah. Go back she, to the Congo, yeah, so, wherever you're from. Like, I know she can't tell because she hears the accent, she sees the olive skin, and she's just like she doesn't know. What, and because I don't fit with the African American, I don't fit with the with the white community. So it's so I'm just a foreign person. Well, you so, know, it's interesting you say that, and I don't want to go down political. We're going to go back to writing. But I, what I found very interesting is I think in a lot of countries, um, 
world stuff is taught differently than it is in the United States. Like yeah. the United States seems to be a bubble, not everywhere. Nobody take this and just go run with it. But <laughs> like world geography was an elective in my high school. It wasn't oh, wow. required. It was an elective course that I, I happened to take to understand. And like, I had a situation at um, a, a, an employer I was with where I work in HR, but I had a gentleman working for me and he is from Venezuela, right? Mm -hmm. Venezuelan. And um, I, we were talking to somebody and I, we said, well, no, of course he's from Cambodia, right? Cambodia is an Asian <laughs> nation, right? Like, yeah. and, and I said, he's from Cambodia. He speaks a clicking language and I wasn't being racist, but this guy, hook, line, and sinker bought that he was from Cambodia and spoke a click. I'm like, do you don't understand world geography? It's an Asian nation, and they don't – oh, my God. And he yeah. literally was like, really? And then he goes, say something. And the guy made up some sounds, and then the guy looked at me and goes, what did he say? So on top of it, none of this could be accurate. And then the guy thought for some reason I would know a Cambodian clicking language. <laughs> and I'm like, Americans are so dumb. But that's not true. Not all Americans are dumb, but I think there is a degree of, if you want to speak on a topic, you need yeah. to get educated yeah. on said topic. Like right. you don't, don't just go, everybody is from, you know, Osama bin Laden. That's one, one, one country in the Middle East. It's one person in person. one country in yeah. the Middle East. Get yourself educated. Okay. We can go down a whole thing, but you write stories from this, um, this view. What is the feedback you've gotten regarding your story? Have you heard from people that are, are really impressed Relate that you brought? To connect to you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the feedback that I got was, um, many of them, they really like the scenes that were set in the Middle East in Amman, Jordan, because they didn't know what Jordan is all about. And it was, I think the most interesting part for everyone was not the American part of the story, is was this woman or this girl growing up, coming out of age in the Middle East and what she faced. Mm -hmm. And I think it it humanized the people of the Middle East and it just you realize that humans are all the same. They have aspirations. They have dreams that, you know, and when when you, like, live life through their eyes, you really humanize with them. You really understand their struggles. And I think that was the most popular part of the novel. That was the feedback that I got. Um, and how did that make you feel as a writer? Because I, I think it's great that you wrote from something that you know because one of the things that we talk about a lot with writers right. is when they don't write from a place they understand. Like if you said to me, Erica, I want you to write a story and it's going to be based in Jordan and you need to write about it. I'd be like, um, uh, no, 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 no <laughs> well, I'm not going to do yeah. it justice. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, are you referring to the American dirt controversy or any of those uh -huh. stuff? Yeah. I mean, the what? Yeah, I mean, the American dirt novel. Oh, that was, uh, no, I would like to hear your okay. views on that. So basically... The, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. So there was a novel back by Oprah Winfrey called American Dirt. And she's like, oh, this is a great cultural piece. Let's send it to all the libraries at the Mexican-American border. And they sent it back and pulled from her program. And if I remember right, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, the author aligns herself as white even though her mother is of Mexican-American culture, but she makes 
one of it and stereotypes it bad. Oprah's been burned a few times in trusting humans yeah. to write books, but I, it's not just American Dirt. Like I, I think it's true. Um, even when you talk about like I, I wrote a story in Boston and. I wrote it where the person was driving a car and my friend called me and go there. Nobody drives a car. Like they all take the train. What are you doing? Like uh-huh. that's not a thing. And that's just small. But if you said to me, write a story about Jordan, I'd be like, um, no, cause I haven't been there. I don't do research. Like, obviously I could Google, but I wouldn't be talking from a place of authority on that situation. And I think it's impressive that you're talking about that and your voice is there. Um, and I've been drinking, and where was my point? Oh, yeah, talking about, where was my point, Val? Right, well, and putting a little bit of yourself out there like that, where it connects directly, it's it's a, a raw sensation, and there's a lot of bravery and courage as a writer. And yeah. So how did you tackle that overcoming that rawness of, yeah. of that aspect? I mean, there were some scenes that were really hard to write, um, and then I had, like, to leave... Uh, the computer and and just go away and because it brought back really memories um and i think it's a double-edged sword because you get criticized by both sides you get criticized by your own people because they accuse you of airing their 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 dirty laundry and you get criticized maybe by like let's say the American audience because they think you're harsh on on the experience of the, the uh, on, on the, the American society you know because you talk a lot about racism or whatever so I think you get criticism from both sides so I got criticized from you know some Jordanians said that you did like you know you you were pretty critical of the Jordanian society and some and many of them told us maybe the West should not see this dark side in our society. And at the same time, I, some author, some uh, um, readers said that you were too harsh on on the American culture. And I don't like to read books that are really harsh on on that on like living in American society or all of that. So it's like damn if you do, damn if you don't. And it's 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 a very unique and difficult position. And then I realized that early on. And if I keep thinking, is my mom gonna read this? Is my uh, you know neighbor next door gonna read this? Is you you it's gonna paralyze you. So I was like, okay, I'm I'm writing for myself. I'm gonna write what I feel. I'm gonna write the the truth. I'm gonna I'm gonna stay true to myself. And and you know, and I did that. And so I wrote the experience as I experienced it, and I tried not to put any filters. Um, and, you know, some people did not like that, uh, which is fine. Uh, but, you know, would I do this again? Maybe. Probably. I, I don't know. I mean, but I I would take their, their feedback, uh, you know, into consideration, but I would always try to be true to myself. And I think that's really important. You have a voice and you're utilizing it. Obviously, we, we, t- we tend to write a lot of paranormal romance and um, uh, horror and stuff. And I think one of the things is, is are you brave enough because it's your artwork to put it out there? And I think that comes to what is your end goal as an author? So now you've published, you published a book, you went the traditional route, you found a publisher. Yeah. What made you choose that route? Why did you go that way? Because that's a, that's a little perilous journey you can go on. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had um, some difficulties along the way. I'm, I'm not sure if, if you followed um, the controversy last year with my book. But um, so I um, I published, uh, I tried to get an agent. I, you know, sent multiple and multiple uh, uh, queries to agents. And um, I was, uh, you know, rejected. Uh, many agents asked for manuscripts, but then they got back to me say, "This is not for us." Um, and uh, you know, some of them say we, we 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 could not connect with the main characters. So, and then I found a, uh, through Twitter, I found a call for submission from a publisher, who uh, who was willing to accept. Uh, unaged, unagented pub, um, uh, authors. So I, I sent my, my my query, my pitch, and then he asked for the full manuscript, and then he decided to acquire the novel. Uh, and then um, things did not work out with the publisher um, due to a Twitter controversy. Uh, I tweeted something, and um, the the tweet became viral and uh, yeah well done with that like most people want their tweets to become viral so yeah but even though it's not great i want to give you a round of applause you went viral go team no but it, <laughs> it, it, it went viral for the wrong reasons yes i had to apologize and take it down and then but the publisher decided to not publish the novel anymore so it, it was oh, did a, they actually pull the novel because they did. I, Okay. Yeah. Um, it's it's. I mean, I can I can tell you about it. It was a, a criticism of the um, DC Metro, and I was saying that you know one of one of your employees are breaking the rule of eating on the Metro. Um, and I shouldn't have done that in public. I mean, I recognized it was a mistake because I took a picture of the employee in uniform. And uh, when I realized my mistake, I immediately deleted the tweet, but it was too late. And and um, the employee was African-American, and I never mentioned any race or anything, so I was accused of racism. It was totally misrepresented, um, um, and it was blown out of proportion. Um, we talk uh, about that a lot, that when you, when you decide to take from writing in for yourself and at home for private, yeah, and to yeah. author, Everything you say and do takes on a whole new meaning, whether exactly. you aim for it exactly. to be that way or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was a good learning experience for me, and you know, I, I now I understand why people took it this way. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm myself, a, you know, a, a person of color, and you know, I was I was just trying to to poke at the DC Metro uh, and their, their poor service. That's That was it. And again, I, I shouldn't have done that. I should have done it in a more private manner. And so I I, I made this mistake, but the, the, the Twitter was not forgiving, the Twitter mob for a poem. And, you know, I got death threats. I got racial slurs. Um, uh, the, you know, people started calling me jihadi, Hamas, terrorist, go back to your country, whatever. Um, and then the publisher just could not handle the pressure of the, of the online mob and, and they dropped the book and in and the story um was picked up by the media and um you know and i went through depression and it was a very hard year for me and then another publisher uh, after they read the story they felt that what happened to me was unfair and they they read the book and they liked it and so the publisher approached me and he said that he would like to uh, acquire the rights for the novel, and now it's I have a new publisher. So there, so there was a happy ending. No, there is. That. How do you, you know, this is interesting, and I think not a lot of authors realize this too. 
is actually the moment you publish any work whatsoever, you become a public figure. Correct. Whether people realize that or not, you are instantly a public figure. And I've had to explain this to a lot of people because obviously if you're a private person, um, media has to deal with you differently than if you are a public figure. Because yeah. when you're a public figure, you automatically lose a crap ton of rights yeah. around what you're saying. Um, so now that you've come through that, do you think that, um, you know, obviously, you know, you didn't expect that to go viral. You didn't write it from a bad mm -hmm. place. You weren't intending to do something. Um, do you approach social media and stuff like that differently now? Yeah, I do actually. I mean, as I said, it was, um, a good learning lesson for me. And, and for a year I had to deal with a lot. I had to deal with guilt and shame and sense of injustice and with all these like trifecta of of feelings that you go through and I decided that I would never use my social media influence for the negative even though my intention was like to improve the metro service but the way I went around it was negative and I you know it's sometimes it's hard to do because there's lots of negative stuff happening around the world and sometimes I slip because I'm, you know, I'm human, but I always now realize that I like I have almost 10,000 followers, and I now realize that you know I should use this following for the positive and not for the negative. And it it was a harsh lesson to learn, honestly. And I, you know, I I paid a lot for it, you know, mentally, and I lost my first book deal and all of that. But it's it's it was very eye opening, and um, I think it made me a better person. It made me kinder. It made me more empathetic, and um, and made me really think about the power of so of of my influence as an author and plus as an influencer on social media. No, I I think that you know it's good to have great takeaways. Let's talk about your writing process a little bit. So. Um, what did you, when did you decide you wanted to actually be a writer? Like, when did you go, you know what, I'm a writer and I'm going to do this and eventually I'm going to get published. When was that moment? So all my life, since I was young, like in elementary school, I just loved reading and I loved writing. And of course I was reading and writing in Arabic. I didn't speak English back then. I grew up in Jordan. I didn't speak a word of English. <laughs> and, um, so I, you know, in school, you know, you have these, you know, um, like writing exercises and the teachers were always um, commending me saying, wow, wow, this is great. And I, I, I realized early on that I have a talent for this, especially that I started reading really early. My parents said maybe I was four when I started reading and, you know, in Arabic, which is one of the most difficult languages in the world. Um, and oh. then, um, and then I, we were living actually in, um, in the Persian Gulf in a con in Kuwait, if you know the, the country of Kuwait. Oh, I know exactly where Kuwait yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now we're, in America, we're very well aware of Kuwait. <laughs> Kuwait yeah. It was in the news. <laughs> yeah. The Iraq, the first Iraq war. Yeah. So um, we, uh, we were living there and then we, and we moved to Jordan and when we moved to Jordan, um, uh, the the English curricula in Jordan was way advanced, and I found myself really struggling. And then, um, then my dad uh, wanted me to cross the barrier of of 
the English language because I was really falling behind because all the other kids knew how to speak English and I, I, I didn't. So he started getting me books in English. And back then, I'm talking about the early 80s uh, or mid 80s, there, Jordan is very small. There were no books in English. So he used to go to the flea markets out like outside of the capital and he see books that are left by expatriates. So expatriates, they leave and they just just get rid of them and somehow the flea markets would have these books in English. So he would go and start scouting. And I remember the first book he, he got me, it was um, Super Fudge. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's a great one though. I know. And I remember I, I, I read it and I really liked it. And he kept telling me, you have to read, you have to read, especially in English. And I started reading all the time. Um, and and my English improved. And um, and then I started writing in Arabic and English. And then, um, and then I got into journalism because I really wanted to be a writer, honestly. And then I moved to the US when, and when I was 28. And then um, when I moved then, I remember maybe a few months after I moved, I, was, I looked at the, um, the fiction section of the, of the Washington Post. Back then they had a fiction section, they canceled it, or a book section or something, they, they canceled it. And there was an interview with a Chinese-American author. Her name is Yun, um, uh, Yun, Yun Li. Yeah, and she was um, when she came and and she back then I think she won um, the Pulitzer for her uh, collection of short stories about Chinese Americans, and I was just reading the the her profile and I was just blown away that when she moved to the U.S. she she did not know a word of English and she was studying biology I think and then she switched her major she quit quit being a doctor and then she became an author went to the Iowa Writers uh, uh, Workshop, and then she started writing, and then she got this award. And I was like, if she can do it, if she moved to the U.S. in her 20s, not knowing a word of English, and now she's an award-winning author telling the stories of Chinese-American, I think I can do this. And so I immediately, uh, the next day, I started chatting with one of my coworkers, who's a, who's a writer himself, and then he told me about... Um, a place in Bethesda, Maryland, where we live, that gives writing uh, workshops. So I went there, I, I started taking uh, workshops in short stories, I met people there, and then I started my own writing group. And, you know, 10 years later, we still meet uh, in a di different group of people, but um, so they helped me with the writing process. And so it, it was really a journey from me being young to me, you know, hearing about these inspiring stories, about knowing that I have the talent. So it's, it's, it, it's been quite a journey. It sounds like totally. Okay, we're gonna have more questions. We have to take our 30 minute break. So we will be right back right with back. more Natasha. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. <laughs> Hey, thank you for listening to Drinking With Authors. We wanted to let you know that if you're an aspiring author out there and you'd like to be on our podcast, you can email us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com. Or if you guys have a question, comment, want to tell us some little tidbit of interesting news, you can always direct message us or comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love that you're listening. We love that you're out there. And we look forward to hearing from you.
called Run Across America. And um, <laughs> I had a busy morning, so I'll, uh, I'll, I guess I have to drink coffee. <laughs> it's all right. Maybe some water, too. Okay. Okay, we're back. So we were talking about writing. So you went on a kind of a, a – a, not even kind of an epic journey to get to where you are, right? You even joined workshops, which is something I recommend a lot of first-time authors. It's not a solitary activity anymore. There are workshops, there are groups, and you went as far as making your own group and adding, you know, and I love hearing stories like that. Yeah. Because I wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for doing the same thing, starting to go to workshops and finding my own work groups. And and I think that's important. So – you you go um you go on this journey you have little people which takes time i know we both have little pe- mine are much bigger now mine are actually 21 and 24 i had that realization they're like full grown adults now i don't even want to talk about that but um <laughs> so let's talk about um what do you like to uh read so let's go there what do you enjoy reading sure so um, i have my own book club <laughs> too so and uh we're currently reading the island of sea women which i'm I'm really enjoying it's about um the female korean uh, divers um right uh during the korean uh, world war uh, the korean uh, war and it was fascinating because the female divers are or were uh, the breadwinners of the family, and their husband took care of the, of the kids. And this is based on on true events. So you get into their lives during the the Korean War um, and uh, the World War Two, and and all of that. So it's it's fascinating. And this was picked by one member of our book club. So what I like to read. So I like to read. Uh, I like to read dark stuff. I know this is. <laughs> Which which reminds me, uh, and I love Jim Polari as well. It's funny, I went to um, a reading by Jim Polari, and uh, you know, she writes about Indian Americans, and I, I like to emulate her style. And one of the people, uh, one of the participants uh, or, or the attendants asked her, you know, how come you never have happy endings in your book? And she was like, because life ha- never has a happy ending. I was like, <laughs> that's pretty dark. <laughs> that is my tagline. That is literally the tagline for all my stories. Not every story I, I, has a happy ending because... Life is not a happy ending. I mean, we all die at the end, I guess. But, I mean, the issue for me is I really like international settings. And it's because, you know, myself, I lived in different countries. I worked in different countries. I went, you know, I, I went to school in the UK and moved to the US. So... And as I said, we live in a very diverse community. You know, like my kids, when they go to school, uh, most of the kids are like mixed, you know, like, you know, the mom is Japanese and the dad is, you know, like white or, you know, American born. And then, you know, like they're all mixed, every nationality, every language. And the fact that I speak Arabic to my kids is, you know, is, is not something unique because all the moms speak different language to their kids. So... I, I, I used to work for the World Bank and before that for another international organization in, in, in D.C. So I'm, I'm, I love this international setting. So I love books that take me to different places, 
uh, you know, places I've never been to, introduce me to different culture and teach me something. And I love books that after I read them, I come out changed. I'm changed as a person. Um, and, you know, so that's why I like uh, the writing of Jennifer Lahiri. I like Junot Diaz as well, you know. I loved um, his book, uh, The Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, you know, where we all into, um, what's the country? Um, uh, the Dominican Republic, you know, when he took us back to the Dominican Republic and the politics of the Dominican Republic. And, um, you know, this one, I'm now immersed in the life of Korea and the war, and the war between South and North Korea. I, I love to, you know, to travel uh, while I'm reading a book. I just, before that, I finished Trevor Noah's book, uh, biography, where, you know, he took us to South Africa uh, right after the apartheid uh, um, and, you know, all the racism issues and all of that. I, I mean, these are the kinds of books that I like. At the same time, I love books with a twist that has supernatural element. That's why I introduced the supernatural element in my book. And I, I, I love thrillers and mysteries. And um, books that I really hate, do not like to read is books that after you finish them, you say, so what? Or if, if it had an open-ended, like an ending that did not make sense or... It's a lot of uh, flowery language with, and the plot is very loose. And, um, you know, these are the books that I don't like. I feel there's a lot of push towards the language on the expense of the plot. I like books that have both the language and the plot. So one of my favorite books is Where the Crawdads Sing. That was, for me, amazing because it had the language and a great plot. So... These are the kind of book I like. Very cool. Well, I, I was looking at where yeah. the crowd had saying I wanted to read that book. Yeah, someone mentioned Drop That Mean to me the other day. I was like, oh, man, now I regret not, like, taking the time to <laughs> write it down or look at it. Um, She's going to say it. We're not going to remember by the end of this podcast. Like, we're going to wait till we're listening we to it again. Too much drink. Too uh, many drinks. <laughs> we're going to be like, oh, where the crowd is. Sing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No. So let's talk about your writing process a little bit. Yeah, like, do you have a ritual? I know you were saying earlier because of your schedule, especially writing uh, the book, uh, They Call Me Wyatt, that you had to make time. I'm always talking about make time for writing. You made yes. time for writing. Yeah. You know, what was part of that ritual? So, well, so and then also, are you like a plotter? Do you plot a lot or do you? No. Yeah. No. So, so this is my <laughs> no. She's no, 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 not at all. I mean, I usually okay. So my let's say like life before the pandemic, and um, because now, as, as I said, I'm just everything is a mess. But um, the way for me was, I felt like to be a good writer, you have to put the ten thousand hours, regardless if you have a talent or if you don't have a talent. To be a writer, you have to be committed. You have to show up, rain or shine, uh, and you have to actually do the work. Uh, forget about if you're a good writer. Forget about all of that. Show up, treat it as a job. Uh, and um, f for me, I just showed up. I showed up to uh, you know at six a.m. and I wrote whatever you know, crap I had in my mind, I put it down. And then, and, you know, sometimes when I'm going to work or um, I'm on the metro, 
I think about, I, I keep thinking about the novel and I like, ideas come to my mind. Sometimes I just type them in the, my notepad on, on, my, on my phone. And then the next day when I wake up, I know what I'm going to write about because I, I already thought about it. Or I'm in the shower, of, um, I like running, or if I'm running in the woods, an idea comes to me. Um, and I just write it down. Um, and then, um, so my process was show up. Just show up and do the work. And the words will will add up, and eventually we'll have a novel. And I even took a a, a workshop called the Extreme Novelist, where she where, where the instructor teaches you how to write a novel in six weeks, at least the first draft. And this was that, that was seems really like helpful. a lot of pressure. Not gonna yeah. lie, <laughs> yeah. six weeks is a lot of pressure. <laughs> But, 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 she's going to need more wine. I'm going to need a lot more. I'm going to need a lot more beer if I'm going to do six weeks. Anyway, this together. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so the idea was f for me is to show. So, so while showing up, and I had a rough idea of what the novel was about, and it actually came to me in a dream. I dreamt that I was um, uh, um, a woman who was uh, uh, pushed um, off the roof of the building and I died and then I woke up in the body of a three-year-old boy. And I woke up the next morning and I wrote it as a short story and I presented it to my um, uh, authors, to the, to the group of the writers that I belong to. And one of them told me that this should this works better as a novel. And I, I'm glad I listened to her advice and I, I turned it into a novel. So, and then, but when I started, I mean, that's the only thing that I had in mind. A woman is pushed over by uh, by someone and she dies and she's in the body of a three-year-old boy. That was what I had. And then I started developing the characters and then, I know this maybe sounds as a cliche, but really the characters sort of guide you to where to go and they, they they, they lead you to the ending and then you started seeing all the pieces of the puzzle and but you have to show up you know you you know like those scenes in the movie where they show the author suddenly getting inspired and, and finishing the novel it does not work like this at, at least not for me I have to uh, yeah I have I have to to put the 10,000 hours no it makes sense okay so this next book so you went traditionally published two times technically with your first book. Yeah. Um, this next book, are you going the traditional route? Where are you, where are you at now? Do you have an agent? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. I, I would love to get one. I, I haven't been um, looking for one now because um, I have not finished the first draft. And when I finish the first draft, I'm going to start looking for an agent. Um, um, you know, I'm I'm gonna see if the same publisher wants to to publish the second novel or not, and um, you know I'm gonna explore my my, my options. Um, why am I going through the traditional route? Because um, it's just I I don't have um, enough money to publish my own book. I mean, honestly, I I can't afford to self-publish. To you know to say I think it's fascinating you say that because. 
We're, we're publishers too. We actually have a publication company outside of this. We, we just like drinking and talking to authors because it's probably the funnest part of existing. <laughs> but we have a, and it, it's interesting you say that because it is definitely a challenge to do it correctly, right? Do it, yeah. you have somebody edit the book correctly and everything like that. Um, do you have beta readers when you did this first book? Did it, was it your writing, your reading group that you had that yes. writing author group? I'm saying this wrong. You're right? drunk and you're mixing. They were instrumental in making the book a success because I, I always doubt myself because English is not my first language, but you know, they were, they were really good at, you know, picking the, the small things that I missed. They, and it's funny. The first draft, I think I had three characters that were three different characters that were named Liz. And my friend was like, So, how many Liz's do you have? <laughs> I have you a know. friend that names all of her characters with a J. So there's Jim and James and Jacob. And I'm like, Nobody can keep this straight. Like, I know. I just mean, change it's, the letters up. Yeah, it's like what? It's like, oh, it's 90,000 words. And you forget the minor characters like the yoga instructor her name is Liz or the neighbor is Liz or you know um, <laughs> and she was like is I don't know like one of her comments is 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 this your favorite uh like name ever or is it are you gonna call your child Liz or something but I really I really had three minor three different minor characters who were called Liz and um but it's funny. And, and Do you know why that was your default name? Just out of curiosity, like why was that the default name? It's interesting because I was imagining like a, an affluent Caucasian woman and the, the first name that came to mind was Liz. Does that make sense? It does make it does sense. Make it's sense. I, now you know what the sucky part is. Now that's the in my brain. brain? <laughs> that's, 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 that's the book she writes. So Everybody's gonna have Liz. Liz. It's gonna be in there. It's gonna be fun. <laughs> do you um? So when you sit down for your hour, when you were able to do that and you got yourself set aside, how many words were you able to write in that hour? Ooh, do do I really have to to, to say that? You don't have to do anything. <laughs> but probably like 500 words. Uh, That's not know, bad in an hour. Bad. That's nothing to be ashamed You're of. You're waking up, you know, you have a long day ahead. You're like pregnant. Stool, right? Yeah. There's a lot that there is like that downtime before you actually get into it. Actually yeah. get into it. Yeah. And then by the time I get into it, I make my coffee and then the kids are awake and I have to get ready. So I figured 500 words is better than nothing. Exactly. No, 500 words is absolutely better than nothing. It's nothing to shake a stick at. Seriously. So, um, what was, I had a, words, words, words. No, what what are you drinking now? You switched drinks. I had to switch drinks. I only, it's sweet baby Java. It's, it's peanut butter, Java, coffee, chocolate. This is like got a lot of things happening in this one. Beer. I don't want to talk about it. It's it's okay. Okay, so um, your next novel. When do you think you're actually going to get your next novel done? Do you have a timeline for yourself? No pressure. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> no pressure on the podcast. Tell us now. Everyone wants to know. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I don't know. I I think I'm going through this kind of. I'm like I'm dealing with 
lots of stuff as we all dealing with with stuff you know in the pandemic and what's happening now with you know black lives matter and your identity and where the country is going and how you're gonna raise your kids and like I feel my mind is just not that I can't focus um but every day I was like okay next week is the week when I'm gonna get back to it but Initially, I wanted to have the first draft done by the end of the summer, but probably that's not going to happen. So I'm going to give myself a deadline to finish the first draft by the end of the year. How, I, how I, important is it to give yourself some forgiveness as a writer? I know, uh, for instance, just like you in the quarantine pandemic, I, I'm a lead typesetter. So I have a team that I'm responsible for. I totally fell off the riding bandwagon for a solid 30 days and it threw me behind so bad that I was like giving myself panic attacks over it. But the, the idea is I had to forgive myself for for that time because this is not normal circumstances. Life is unpredictable. I have children who are now, I've never homeschooled. I never thought I would have to homeschool. (laughs) I'm not proud for this kind of moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for me to forgive myself. I, mean, I guess I went to a Catholic school. I self-flagellate. But I mean, no, I mean, it's, uh, uh, but it's the idea of, of forgiving myself was really something hard for me to do. Um, and I, 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 str- I struggled with it a lot, not only when it comes to writing, but everything from parenting, from mistakes I've done in the past, whether it's with relationships, whether it's with jobs, whether with my like Twitter drama, whether with, with everything in life. Um, I'm someone who's really, really hard on myself. And I think we women, you know, for example, I think are harder on ourselves than, than men. And I, I, I see like my husband or others, how they, they can easily move past their mistakes. And I'm someone who dwells on them. And, you think about uh, getting back into your pattern because you were talking about like you're going through some major life things, having two smaller children, have being pregnant with me. the third children. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. well now you have three, but you had one in the belly, which doesn't count because you don't, you know, they're contained. They're like in a playpen of cushiness. <laughs> I don't know if I should say that live, but I did. Um, but the fact is, is do you think about setting yourself back up on that schedule so that you actually make the time because I yeah. think a lot of people, you know, we think about this time and we're like, we get to stay home. I mean, the pandemic has been very stressful on a lot of people, but at the same time as a writer, you think to yourself, you're quarantined, you're not required to go to social obligations. You're not, you, you should technically have all this time in the world, but all of a sudden no. you have no time and you don't want to do it and you're not inspired and you're stuck in a box and you're like, I hate everybody in the world. So well, the reason is I don't have a structure anymore. The kids are not going to school. The baby's not going to daycare. There's 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 no structure, you know. And and now I'm I'm no longer working full time. I'm doing freelance writing for the time being, and I'm looking for a full time job in the meantime because you know we live in the DC area. It's an expensive area. You know, living on one salary is not feasible. Even being an author is not feasible. You have to have a day job, and um. So while this is going on, there's there's really no structure because I'm the one who's taking care of the kids all the day and 
um, trying to entertain them and trying to cook dinner and the kids are, you know, they do the online training and then there's they're spending a lot of time behind screens and I feel bad that they're spending a lot of time behind screens and then I try to take them outside and they don't want to go outside, they want to stay behind their iPad and it's, there's, there's no structure. Before, I had structure. I had... You know, they, they went to school. I went to a job. I had a nine to five. They they came, you know, they went to aftercare. The baby went to to daycare. There was a structure. Now we stay go they go to bed at ten, eleven, we wake up at nine. I mean it's a it's a mess. It's it's a total mess. I mean, I should not give myself all these excuses. I should just do it. I should just set the alarm tomorrow and say I'm waking up at seven, and I should I should do it. Uh, I just and, and, and say it was drinking with author's fault. Yeah, yeah, you can totally blame us. You, you can totally blame us. We appreciate it. We'll we'll take it. We'll even take the Twitter comments. That's fine. <laughs> um, so I think that it, it's interesting though that you say these things. I don't know why I say it's interesting all the time. I've discovered that's like my pot. I do say interesting a lot, and it's my drinking term. Is it? Uh, it's from drinking. It's fine. It's fine. Okay. Um. But I think when you look at, uh, you know, having a structured life and it's almost a structured life because it's set up that way. You go to work. It's kind of like working from home. So many people I work in HR are like, I want to work from home, this whole thing. And a lot of people are like, I don't want to work from home anymore because it removes that like. You, you have the world doing diligence on you. You have the world going, you need to be in this place at this time doing this activity. Like when you go to work, you have to show up in the office at whatever your designated time is. You have to clock in. You have a scheduled lunch yeah. time. And I think we take for granted that if we don't set those barriers in those or Marks. guardrails or whatever up yeah. for ourselves. And a lot of people that I know with children, for instance, we're like, well, crap, now I'm homeschooling these kids. And nobody was prepared to do that. Like, they were like, they have to do these lessons. And I hear a lot of parents go, well, now the kids are waking up this time or this time or this time. And I'm like, okay, well, we kind of got to go dust ourselves off and go, okay, we're going to put this back together again. The kids should get up at 7.30 a.m. in the morning. You know what I mean? Because that's what time school is. And start their schoolwork. Like, you almost have to put this structure back in for yeah. yourself. Because if you don't, they're not going to, kids most especially are not going to do it for you. They'll yeah. want to play on their iPad. They'll want to play Animal Crossing. Right. I play yeah. a lot of Animal Crossing. But they'll want to play a lot of Animal Crossing, for instance. <laughs> and that's what they're going to want to do. Because, yeah. you know, when we were all kids, uh, at least we did, I, I I had Centipede on the Atari, my original Atari system. And, ooh, and Pong. Like, but it wasn't as riveting as Zelda. Like, yeah. like, like RPGs living another life kind of moment. You gotta yeah. live another life. It was Pong. It was not that exciting. <laughs> so you still went outside. Yeah. Still played. And if you don't go, nope, everybody's going outside. We're all going to the park. We're and, gonna... that, and that's pretty much what happened with me. Like when I was derailed for a whole month, it was because I wasn't mimicking that structure and I started mimicking that structure. Like yeah. my husband looked at me like I was crazy because when I said, that's it, I've got, I've got to reestablish the structure. Yeah. And I'm all right, kids, it's eight 30. You need to go to bed. He goes, what are you doing? They don't have school. I said, yeah. technically they do. Technically they do. We're going to treat Monday through Friday. No different as if I'm having the, the they're just saving me gas. That's all yeah. that's happening. I'm trying to reestablish that. And I think my biggest problem still, though, 
is not, I used to take 15 minute breaks and my lunch break and break away from the computer. And I'm failing to do that really bad because I have a very technical job formatting books for, for a publisher. And it's just, no, I need, I need to remember to eat. I got to take care of me because if I break down, who's going to take care of the kids, who's going to manage and juggle all the things. Yeah. 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 I mean, what helped for me is exercise. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I've always been kind of like a book nerd, so I'm not really athletic, but um, I think when I, when I hit 40 and everything starts falling apart, you know. Hashtag <laughs> true story. Everybody's yeah. listening. Yeah, so I, I started realizing that, and then I started like suffering from anxiety and all of that, and I, I realized that I really need to do self-care, especially for my three children. And my self-care during the pandemic was exercise. So, like, I exercise at home. I, like, sign up for, like, programs, you know, and I try to run. I'm a very slow runner, but, you know, I do the best I can. No, I think that's good. I'm super excited to hear about your drinking running experience after you're done with our <laughs> podcast. Drinking with authors is not responsible if you decide to drink <laughs> along with us and go running. We have warned you in advance this is a terrible plan. So... Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what are your writing goals? Like, what as a writer do you want to be? You said you can't be a published author in D.C. and be around that. I totally agree because we're lucky we don't live in an expensive environment like D.C. But would you like to be a published author working full time just doing that activity? Of course. I mean, isn't that every author's dream? I mean, imagine if your if your day is just reading books and researching and writing. I mean, isn't that every author's dream? I mean, it's that that I mean that would be a, a huge dream for me. Like live like Stephen King, you know, every day. Uh, but, but Stephen King, my friend, puts out or did originally several books a year. Yeah, like yeah. you, so that's the difference. Is if you're going to do it, you have to put out a large volume of books. Do you think you could get to that point, or are you hoping to be J.K. Rowling's? No, I, I mean if. If I could afford it, I would do it. I mean, if someone tells me if you put four books a year and you can feed your children only based on these four books a year, I would do it. That would be for me the perfect job. I, well, I, I'm just going to say I think it's a possibility. He may want to do a little thing on it because I think it, I think it is possible. Like we had um, Jeff Strand and he was talking about that. So he he put out books and then he got to I forget how many thirty was it thirty? I yeah, think it was, it was thirty. He had thirty books out, all self published horror novels, and he was able to quit his day job. But oh, he wow. says that he has to put out. He writes in horror, so I'm quite sure this is diff- a little bit different for every genre. But he has to put out two books a year, like two books absolutely a year to keep it going. And so, he has enough audience? That- yes, yes, to do it. And, but he's self-published, so I, I think there's benefits to, to um, going the traditional route. There are definitely benefits, but there are side effects of going the quote-unquote traditional route or depending on the publisher – because you have a situation where one, there's time injected. Like, just say hypothetically, we motivate you. You're like, 
you know what? Eric and Val motivated me. I'm reading tomorrow. I've got this. And you get your book done even by the end of the summer. You've got a couple more months. We're rooting for you. But you get that and say you go through the process, you get it. And even your publisher that exists right now um, goes, you know what? Yes, I want to buy your book, right? One, whatever the percentage they're paying you is probably small because welcome to most traditional publishers. It's lower than 10% normally. I mean, I hope it's higher for you, but generally you don't have to talk about your contract because we're not getting into that. We're not getting a publisher to fire you. No. (laughs) Um, So you just say you go with them, then they go, cool. So this will be out in two years. Yeah. That is, I think, you know, I think as an author, if you're going to look at being an author and that's what you're going to do and you're going to write is you have to look at every avenue and whether you go, I'm going to put these very prolific thought provoking books, but I'm going to put those to traditional publishing and I'm going to write, you know, female driven adventure stories as my other thing and put those out as self-published books because you actually can. And I wanted to bring that up is for instance, I'm going to, I'm going to break the entire universe right now. You are. I I am. You ready? You're holding on to this? Okay. Okay. I'm going to break the universe. You don't have to have an ISBN to publish an ebook on every single site except for Ingram Sparks. Like you can publish without the ISBN to Amazon, Kobo, Nook. Like you absolutely don't have to have an ISBN to, to publish there. Free to publish. Free to sign up, free to publish. You can totally do it through that. And you can um, look at there are other ways to look at getting cover art, things like that, if you educate yourself. So I think that. It, it does take research and time to look into how to do this, but then you find your niche and you find the consumable genre because it becomes a job. So yes, you have like your novel, which is covering all kinds of dynamics and all kinds of things, but then you go, okay, what do people eat? Like people eat romance novels and people who read what romance novels. Five books a week? Five books a, no, five books a month. A month. That's five books a month, month on average is what romance readers read. Wow. Five yeah. books. Rom- okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You They're don't think great. about that. So you have is when you look at it, you have to almost step back and go, this is a job. This is a job. How do I make money at this job? How I make money at this job is writing the genre. And I like writing the genre. And then I have these other things that I enjoy writing for, too. For labor of love. Labor of love is writing. What I call those. Yeah. So I think it's it's interesting, maybe thought-provoking during this episode, but, you know, as wanting to be that, I agree with you. That's what we both want to be, and we're working towards that goal because, yes, it's so much fun to create things. It's so much fun to create sure, an yeah. impact with your writing, and your writing goes way deeper than the <laughs> one of us. Ours is on a much higher level of writing. Yeah, no, no. Mine does not dive that deep. I've got people shifting into creatures and – Hooking up. That's, that sums it up. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like fun, especially now. You know, you need a distraction, you know. <laughs> it's true. Do you Have you written any um, fluff fiction? I don't know what to call it. I don't want to offend people that write erotica. I write... it's, it's erotica. It's, yeah. It's have you written any, like, fun, like, I don't want to say fun. That's not the right word. Have you written any fluffy? I'm going to light, just offend light, everybody. Light, light. You can call it light. Light. There. Thank light. you. Light there stuff. I can't even be on light my own podcast. Have uh, you written light stuff? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think 
like I'm a dark person <laughs> by nature. I mean, now, now I don't sound like it because of the alcohol, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I I think um, I think I view the world through dark lenses, and and it's hard for me to write about light stuff when deep down inside of me. Like I think everything sucks, you know, and um, and I think if I do that, I won't be true to who I am. I think um, I don't know, but I just always think of the worst case scenario. Just ask my husband, and you know, I'm I'm working on that. I'm trying to be more positive, but it's it's hard for me. To think in like roses and you know the, you know and the birds are singing and the sky is blue and it's it just um and I'm also drawn to like dark literature dark movies dark um I don't know I don't know why I think it's the way I was why I know exactly exactly <laughs> I, lo- I love horror then why don't you write some horror stories and throw those out there do your two novels a month because you'll get to the point where you can absolutely be writing full-time and have that because that's a that's a good idea so what you're saying is like having a hybrid like model where i have a traditional publisher for the for like the one novel a year and the rest i will do like horror self-published stuff yeah, totally self-publish totally. or find a hybrid publisher. A lot but, of even Nora, I think Nora Roberts does it that way too. Yeah, she? because yeah. you don't want. Here's the thing: if you, especially horror novels, they need good covers, obviously, but they don't need like. I think people don't realize, and this is a whole other podcast we can get into about, you know, you do need an editor, but if you have a writing group and you can put it through all these beta readers and they give you all the that movie, feedback yeah. and then you're good, then you're good. You, I think people overthink this situation and like Jeff Strand, who in, for instance, is one of my favorite, like he's an epic straight man, not sexually, but like he is the most, like he doesn't say things with a laugh, but he's one of the funniest people you'll ever meet in your life. But his, one of his latest books is about a girl who has psychic powers. And when she gets very emotional, she breaks people's bones and stuff like that. And you just go, and it's called Allison, for instance. And, you know, you look at this book, or he has one called The Odds, and it's about a guy who does betting, and he ends up having to keep giving up parts of his life for the fact that he keeps making these bets and stuff like that. And, but you write it, you get it out there, and he talks about, like, not having the great next great American novel. Like, what you wrote is the next great American novel kind of book. Yeah, true. You don't have to go that deep if you want to be paid to be an author all the time. You have to have books that come out because your readers, the moment they read your book, they want to hit the next buy button. That's what happens. And if they can't hit the buy button and something's not following that, you can tend to lose them because they tend to be like, they just want, it's like Netflix, like Tiger King. We all binge that crap. It wasn't like, we're like, I'm going to watch one episode a week. I'm like, I'm going to stay up, not sleep and go to work totally. Yeah, I, I've never thought about this, but that's that's a great idea. I mean, especially now because I'm exploring my options. Um, that's great. I mean, but 
how do you get the audience that are like who who is the audience that are willing to read self-published authors oh oh no that's that's the audience that's out there is what you the only time you lose your audience we have to wrap up because we're way over 30 minutes but it's fine we're going to wrap up but the audience you have out there is if you have a well-edited story that they like to do they don't care who published it what they care is well is it grammatically correct is it a good story and people have to remember that covers are advertising you don't look at a book cover we've had this conversation many times i don't give a flying crap i'm actually gonna say i don't give a flying fuck whether or not the character was a a buxom blonde or favorite favorite uh statistic fabio was on over 466 romance novels because he sold the novel and not one of them described their character as him. They do. It's a marketing tool. You have to remember that when you're looking at your cover, you got to look, does the little thumbnail look good? Does it draw your attention? Does and you pick up the book and read the blurb? Now, now it's in your core at that point because you're the crafter of words. So if you can make a killer blurb and a killer first chapter, most will buy at that point. And then if they love your book, they'll just keep buying in the way every one of these sites, whether it's Amazon, Nook, Kobo, any of them go, well, if you like this one by Natasha Tynes, there's the next one by Natasha Tynes. And maybe you put those under a different name instead of Natasha Tynes because you have that with this prolific. You make up a, a name like a name. pen name, like you eat people's faces. I don't care what the pen name is. Bob Smith. <laughs> and you put it under that, and that's what you, you do that. And you'd be amazed. The fans and everything like that, they'll follow you. They'll They'll gobble it up. And you don't have to do all of this ridiculous spending the $8 million to do it. But we do have to wrap up this podcast because we do, because we're over time. But we'll talk more. Anyway, how do people find you? Yes. How did they find my book? Not your house. Don't give out your address. But, like, if they wanted to (laughs) find your books and stuff, don't don't want people hunting you down. It's good. We're we're pretty toasty. Yeah, I'm I'm everywhere. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I have my uh, website. I have my newsletter. So, um, you know, I'm I'm easy to find. Um, uh, My book is on Amazon. Um, It's uh, Natasha Times, and it's T-Y-N-E-S, correct? Yes, correct. Okay, so find Natasha Tynes out there. This has been Drinking with Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. And I've been Valerie Willis. And we'll see you next time. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun. (laughs)